Hello, I'm Charles Bowen and welcome to a very special episode of Off the Agenda. Today we're in the City of London, an international hub for financial and professional services and home of the Bank of England and many other financial institutions. And I'm delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Baroness Dambisa Moyo of Knightsbridge, acclaimed businesswoman, global economist and global affairs author. She started her career in 1993 at the World Bank in Washington, D.C., where she worked as a consultant and co-authored the bank's annual World Development Report. She moved to Goldman Sachs, working as a research economist and strategist in debt capital markets and global macroeconomics. She holds a PhD in economics from Oxford, a master's in public administration from Harvard, and an MBA and Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry and Finance from American University in Washington, DC. She's a member of G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council and a member of the Goldman Sachs One Million Black Women Advisory Council and a platinum patron of the Tate Museum. She has served on the board of directors for many notable organizations, including 3M, Chevron, Barclays, Barrett Gold Corporation, Seagate Technology, SAB Miller, Condé Nast, Bloomberg, the Harvard Business Review, and more. In 2009, she was listed in Time Magazine 100 Most Influential People in the World, and in December 2022, Dambisa Mayo was created Baroness Mayo of Knightsbridge in the city of Westminster, and now serves as a peer in the House of Lords. And it is my great pleasure to welcome her to Off the Agenda. Baroness Mayo, Damisa, welcome to Off the Agenda and thank you for sparing time to be with us and our podcast this afternoon. I'm going to start, if I may, Damisa, right at the beginning. You were born in Zambia, Lusaka in 1969 and lived with your parents and your younger sister, Marsha. Uh, this was only six years after Zambia had gained its independence. What were those early years like for you and your family? And can you share with us some of your childhood memories? Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here and to participate in this podcast. Um, it, my, my recollections of my time growing up in Zambia are only positive. Um, it was a period of a lot of excitement and rejuvenation as the country not only had just um, achieved independence, but also there was a period of euphoria in sort of agency and taking on uh, a role, being part, in basically participating in, in governing and, and ruling uh, of, the, of the nation. Um, I, I have very fond memories of uh, being at my parents' table, having heated debates, very fevered debates about politics and economics, um, and really being more engaged in what was going on around the world. So only very positive experience. Superb. And you spent a few years from three to eight in the USA before returning again to Zambia. Your father was extending his own post-grad qualification, as I understand it. And then you yourself, uh, when you finished at high school, uh, went to the same university as your parents and studied chemistry. Um, uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, that period of your life? Sure. So um, you're absolutely right. The formative part of my sort of life um, was in, in Zambia. So that's my teenage years, um, sort of with adolescence from um, primary, secondary and through to university. Um, but, you know, before that, um, as you uh, just mentioned, my, my father spent uh, a part of his uh, sort of uh, tertiary education in the United States, uh, getting a, a PhD. Um, and so our family 
uh, moved to the United States and were there for about eight years. And so um, also very fond memories um, of that period. Um, but my parents were very keen to go back to Zambia and to sort of build a life there in the post-independence era. Um, you're, you're right, in terms of my formative years, um, primary school, as I mentioned, uh, through secondary school, I went to boarding school in Zambia, Roman Catholic boarding school, even though my family is a Presbyterian Methodist. Um, but I uh, had a wonderful uh, education in Zambia, a very foundational education that would subsequently help me uh, in uh, subsequent years uh, coming to do my doctorate at Oxford and studying at Harvard. Fantastic. You had some interesting challenges too, because through the course of that time, as I understand, uh, there were the attempted coups in, in Zambia. Yes. How, how did that affect the family? Life? Yes. So um, just to, to put it in context, um, Zambia had a president um, at the time of... Uh, of, of independence in 1964 was Kenneth Kaunda. Um, and he ran the country for about 27 years, which is even, you know, by, you know, by, by their standards at that time was an eternity. Um, but it was a one-party state. It was during a lot of the non-aligned period. Zambia was a non-aligned uh, country when the sort of tensions of the, pre, you know, the Cold War uh, were at fever pitch. Um, but, you know, growing up in Zambia, uh, you know, Zambia was a, uh, an independent country um, at a time and in a region that was incredibly volatile. Um, so our neighbors were Angola and remain Angola and Mozambique, um, two Lusophone or Portuguese colonies that were not independent until much later. Uh, Zimbabwe was, was still southern Rhodesia. South Africa, um, which only uh, gained uh, equal uh, uh, access for, for voting in 1994 was also uh, under um, a, a sort of apartheid uh, regime. And so the region was incredibly volatile, which made Zambia quite a unique place and was very much a leader in terms of uh, setting the standard for debate on politics and economics and really uh, a standard bearer, uh, if I can go that far, um, of the region in terms of uh, what, what really could be. I knew at the end of your, your time in, at University of Zambia, you, you won a scholarship uh, to conclude your studies in, in the USA, which took you back to, to, to America. Yes. And beyond that, you then started your career at the World Bank in Washington, uh, D.C., where you worked as a consultant in the Europe, Central Asia and African Department. What inspired you to begin a career uh, in this field? And what were the, some of the early learnings from that experience? Yes. So before I worked at the World Bank and before I moved to the United States, um, there was an attempted coup in Zambia in 1991. And I was a student at that time. Um, and in, in very much uh, sort of reminiscent of what the world is facing today, um, there were real uh, economic there were food shortages um, and issues around subsidies. Um, partly because of, uh, of uh, food prices, we ended up with a, uh, a lot of political instability in the region. Um, and because of that, as a knock-on effect, the attempted coup meant that the University of Zambia, where I was a student, was shut down. Um, and as a consequence, I ended up, uh, as you mentioned, going to the United States um, to complete my undergraduate degree in, in chemistry. Um, you know, I, I've been incredibly fortunate uh, because I subsequently uh, went to the World Bank in Washington, D.C. I was uh, very young. I was 23, and I, I thought that... <laughs> I actually Gosh. thought, uh, armed with my MBA, <laughs> that I was going to change the world. Uh, I had not really fully appreciated the complexities of economics and geopolitics. Um, but landing at the World Bank was 
incredible, um, just in terms of understanding the interplay between economics and politics, but uh, geopolitics, I should say, maybe global uh, politics. But uh, perhaps more than that, it was a real opportunity to understand uh, how to generate growth, the issues of how do you create and sustain economic growth, and perhaps most importantly, really understanding the role of government and public policy in financing public goods like education and healthcare and infrastructure. So it was a phenomenally uh, uh, sort of interesting time. Uh, I learned a lot and uh, I had exposure to so many different countries and a lot of debate around uh, what models of economics um, could and would work. Fantastic. And from there in 2001, you moved or joined one of the financial services greats, Goldman Sachs, where you worked uh, as a research economist and strategist, mainly in the debt capital markets and hedge fund uh, arenas. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? What was the sense of encouragement? Uh, and what did you take away from that particular or those particular roles in that great organization? So it's interesting because when, when, when I have conversations about my life, it all seems quite bitty. But actually, um, in, you know, in reflecting on my life, there's been a sort of overarching theme, which is around um, human progress and economic growth. Um, and so my experience at Goldman Sachs was incredibly eye-opening and incredibly satisfying because it was also about economics and, and growth and progress. Um, it was from a different angle, um, unlike the World Bank, which was predominantly focused on public policy and the role of government. And as I mentioned, public goods like education and healthcare and infrastructure, my experience at the World Bank um, led me to go to, uh, you know, subsequently going to Goldman Sachs was much more about the private sector, the role of the private sector, business, corporations, um, and sort of funding of those types of, uh, of corporations as a piece of, uh, of economic, uh, sort of the pursuit of economic success. And later you took that sense of moving into the private sector a little further. Um, you've been a member of many different boards, including, amongst others, SAB Miller, Barclays, and the international mining group Barrick Gold, sitting on multiple committees of, of, of those uh, organizations. How did you feel taking on those uh, roles of responsibility? Um, what were the challenges? What were the opportunities for you as a person um, and, and as those companies and boards developed? Yes, yeah, so I, I feel incredibly lucky to have had these opportunities. Um, I've been serving on the, the boards of large global complex organizations for 15 years now. Um, I've had the luxury or the benefit of serving on um, companies in many different sectors. So mining, banking, energy companies, um, consumer goods, technology, um, but also um, really have had the opportunity to, to be um, in these boardrooms to see how companies make these hard judgments about where to invest regionally, but also some of the dealing with some of the, the risks and, and looking for opportunities, as you suggest. In terms of risks, um, you know, it's been very interesting. There have been a lot of endogenous risks, things like succession planning. You know, CEOs, and unfortunately, I've had a chairman uh, die um, in the middle of, uh, of my tenure in some companies. M&A um, transactions, thinking about how do you think about mergers and acquisitions. I was on the board of SAB Miller in 2016, um, which was the largest uh, M&A transaction that year. Um, but also thinking about uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, how do you think about operating companies in different regions? 
um, when there's a, a lot of volatility, such as we're experiencing now um, with the war in, uh, between Russia and, and, and Ukraine. And then there's a lot of other things that have happened that are really outside the purview of, uh, of a board. Uh, things like the pandemic or the financial crisis, financial, uh, global financial crisis, are all things that have effects on how, how we think about risk uh, and manage the, the, the business. Um, I remain very optimistic. Um, you know, very fortuitously, many of the companies on which I've served um, as a board member have been around for over 100 years. Barclays over 300 years. Um, and I think in the sweep of history, you start to think about how other boards managed through pandemics and through wars and in eras where there wasn't much technology or information. Um, and, you know, I, I start to understand that my custodial role in a much more sort of clear a clear-sighted way. But nevertheless, there are challenges, um, but there are also opportunities um, in a world in which we live today. Perhaps we'll come back to that uh, in due course, the importance of uh, business as, as we progress forward sure. for, from today's day. But you were named World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, as well as one of Time 100's most influential people in the world. And then you were recognised as one of Oprah, Win Oprah Winfrey's list and 20 remarkable, uh, remarkable visionaries. How pivotal were these particular moments in, in your career and how do they shape your views and your ambitions? Well, very flattering, obviously, to, to be recognized, especially by third parties. So people I don't you know, really know or work with. Um, you know, at the same time, it's very humbling because uh, you, know, you look at other people on the list and what they've accomplished. I think there are a lot of learnings um, just in terms of how they've succeeded in, in multiple fields. Um, I, you know, I view these types of lists as being quite catalytic for my own interests and trying to think about how I can manage my career going forward. Um, and really, rather than being an endpoint, I sort of view them as jet fuel for thinking about how I can do more yeah. and do better in my areas of interest. Fantastic. And coming back, uh, I said I would come back to and drawing on that, that board experience, extraordinary board experience that you've had. What, what are the ways in which corporations can support the quest for economic growth, modern, sustainable ec economic growth? And what are the opportunities and the barriers uh, that we need to overcome? Mm -hmm. So Charles, I'm glad you asked me about this because I, I worry sometimes that we might lose sight of the important roles that, uh, that corporations and companies around the world uh, you know, contribute in terms of contributing for human progress. Um, you know, a handful of ideas sort of spring into my mind. Um, first of all, many companies are, are really at the coalface in terms of innovation. Um, we saw that during the pandemic that, you know, whether it was an AstraZeneca or, you know, Merck or Pfizer, these companies, you know, developed a vaccine in a short period of time. That's really important, not just in the, in the, in the, in the face of a pandemic, but in general, how we communicate, how we eat, how we think about energy transition. Um, companies uh, are very much involved in that innovation piece. Um, the tax base, uh, you know, the very fact that, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier with the World Bank and the need for public goods like education and healthcare care uh, to be funded and government to need to lean into those areas. So government needs to be able to generate or rely on a tax base and companies do that. Um, there are lots of statistics that show that, you know, the contribution of uh, the tax base from companies is, is, is quite important uh, as, is for the government fiscus. And then, of course, is job creation. Um, the opportunity, uh, not just for people my age, but also for young people to be able to have experiences and to understand how economies work and how 
basically companies can contribute, I think, is a very important piece. So there's no doubt about it in my mind that, uh, that there's a, a clear role for companies in, in sort of long-term success and growth. Um, in terms of the challenges, I mean, we are in a period of deglobalization. Um, the world is becoming more siloed, more fractured, um, more fractured in trade, uh, in immigration. There are many more barriers. There's populist movements that are very much against uh, immigration. Um, but also there's lots of concerns about capital movements, and especially in a wartime, as we're experiencing right now, the ability to move capital around the world is becoming much more challenged. And all of these things matter for how companies uh, are run, especially global, traditionally global businesses that could move capital around or people yes. around uh, become much more challenged. And of course, um, you know, we think about technology. Um, it, it's certainly an opportunity in many ways, but at the same time can be quite a challenge if you think about um, sort of some of the tensions between the U.S. and China, um, what that might mean, uh, what they call the splinter net for a world in which there's more comp competition um, and less cooperation. So I think that uh, we remain in interesting times and um, we're very excited to be able to, to have a seat at the table. And the importance, of course, you mentioned technology data too and, and all Absolutely. the challenges and opportunities associated with that. Absolutely. Uh, also. Yeah. One, of the, one area I was keen to focus on is, is actually around climate change. You hosted the Global Investment Summit in 2021, uh, which private companies were encouraged to su support efforts around combating cli climate change. And I was keen to ask you, your viewers, to is climate change as it relates to business a threat or an opportunity? Um, and what are the bright hopes for the future in, in that regard in terms of its opportunity for creating growth? So I think to put it in context, we are consuming about 100 million barrels of oil every day, 100 million. Um, and there's, you know, we have 8 billion people in the world today, 90% of the world's population lives in the emerging markets, mainly poor countries, where people need access to cost-effective cost but reliable energy in order to, to fund things like or fuel things like education and healthcare. Um, and so, you know, do I, I think that the energy transition is an opportunity for us to think about new ways of generating energy, but I think we ought to, to understand that it is a transition. It's not a jump from one equilibrium to another, because even in this world today, there's still over a billion people who have no access to energy and in, in, a, in a reliable, uh, cost-effective way. Um, the consequences of a lack of energy are, are enormous. You have, uh, you know, economic failure in many different countries. You have political instability. You have uh, you know, sort of uh, disorderly migration, which you've seen in many different regions, the southern part of the U.S. border, across Europe and elsewhere. And we should not, dis, you know, disconnect the fact that if people don't have a path towards improved li livelihoods and living standards, um, you know, partly because of lack of energy, lack of growth, um, these things do have real co consequences for all of us wherever we, we live. And so I'm fundamentally... Uh, optimistic. Um, you know, I, I, I joke, we can put a man on the moon, then we can certainly solve some of these challenges. But it does require us to have a little bit of a cool head about how to address such an enormous challenge, uh, such as, uh, as the climate transition uh, is. Um, so my uh, sort of real focus is trying to move away from a narrative that's all about risk mitigation. So it, risk mitigation is important. People talk about you know, reducing uh, emissions, thinking about greenhouse ga gas and methane, et cetera. But I think we need to go beyond that. We need to think about investment 
how do we think about investing? What is better to invest in solar or wind or geothermal or hydrogen? How do we think about those comparative opportunities for investment, um, meaning which ones could be more scalable uh, and more quickly scalable um, to, uh, to be able to, to help with the transition? So I think that there's much more of a sophisticated conversation that needs to continue to be had uh, rather than just uh, sort of getting upset and, and sitting in a, in a sort of a corner about it. And that sophisticated discussion and conversation needs uh, itself the, in, in the context of a world where deglobalization is, is seen as the theme. Uh, we presume, presumably need that sense of collaboration between 100%. Uh, one will in, innovate in one field, another in another. Exactly. And sort of merging the two together. It's exactly. going to be able to the two or three or four together so yes. that two and two can equal more than four. We need, you, you're absolutely right. Not only do we need to reach over the sort of uh, regional aisle, if I can say that, emerging yeah. markets and developed economies. And we've seen in, in COP26 or, and other meetings, COP27, that there are these, these fissures em emerging between the developed economies and the emerging economies on issues of climate. Um, but we also need to think about um, reaching across the aisle or, you know, creating more collaborative uh, discussions um, between the private sector and the public sector. sector. Yeah. Um, you know, we, there's so many times where uh, you've seen that the, the private sector is considered offside and nobody wants to, you know, have a conversation with them or government is seen as ineffective. Um, and I'm very fortunate because I've been able to straddle these different these different groups, as well as the third sector, the NGO sector. Um, and really, uh, we need a, a bit more maturity about the issue of climate uh, and, and the energy transition and the, the space to have the science conversation about, you know, what is the, at, the, at, the, at the root of not just identifying the problem of climate, but really um, going beyond that to identify solutions. Fantastic. Slightly changing the subject, beyond business itself, you're an acclaimed author. You've published and written many publications uh, and books and have become New York Times bestsellers such as Dead Aid, uh, Why Working uh, Is Not Working, How There Is A Better Way For Africa, and indeed The Edge of Chaos. Uh, I was keen to ask you, what, what inspired you to become an author uh, and what type of impact uh, has your literature had on audiences around the globe? Well, I, I think like most authors, you hope it's had a big impact, but <laughs> there's nothing more um, humbling than walking into a bookstore and seeing 100,000 <laughs> new titles, all of them much more interesting than what you've written. So there's always a, some humility in that. Um, but in terms of uh, what's inspired me is that I, I'm inspired every day in the world that we live, we live in. Um, we're in a world where um, there's no clear answer to what creates economic growth, and we have broad sense of what might be good, but you know, we're, we're living in a time when um, some of the most developed economies have the most inequality. Um, the economies, if you compare the US versus China, for example, the US is democratic and market capitalist, um, and China is a, a statist economy that is, uh, has deprioritized democracy. These are two different models, uh, two different, very different countries, but they're number one and number two in terms of of GDP, and so I, I just um, I'm inspired every day by questions of of geopolitics and economics, um, what works. Um, I'm also very inspired by history, uh, in a sense repeating itself, and in terms of pandemics, in terms of 
uh, economic progress, but also economic uh, booms and busts. And so trying to learn from that. I'm not a historian, but I've become much more interested in that space. Um, so there's, just, there's a lot of, uh, uh, I, I think, just to answer your question more pointedly, what inspired me is I've had the luxury and the, the good chance to visit over 80 countries around the world, you know, de democratic, non-democratic, um, you know, uh, capitalist, non-capitalist, poor, rich, et cetera. And, uh, you know, just trying to piece together and pick up on the, the weave of, uh, of differences, but also similarities of humanity. It's been uh, very inspiring and remains very inspiring for me as an author. Fantastic. And the next publication? Working on it. Working on it. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, well, in October 2022, as part of the special honours, it was announced that you would receive a life peerage in the in the House of Lords, and you were created uh, Baroness Mayor of Knight Knightsbridge. Um, and I was keen to ask you, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the nature of of the role being a member of the House of Lords and what 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 it means day to day to be such a member. Yes. So you know, I was very humbled and delighted to, to have been recognized. Um, and I, I, it's, it's early days yet. I think I'm sort of three months in. Um, and the, the mandate or the, rule, the sort of role of the House of Lords is, is scrutiny. Um, it comes down to scrutiny. So we evaluate the bills um, that come from the House of Commons um, in a range of issues. And I think really what's been quite inspiring for me is to um, not only learn about subjects that aren't my sort of ballywick, um, sort of uh, terrorism, um, but you know, science, uh, health issues. I mean, there's many different areas, but also, which I should say requires um, good judgment from um, people who are sitting in the House of Lords, because they're obviously smart people, um, but that might not be your area of expertise, but you're able to form good judgments. But the, the, perhaps the most um, really uh, amazing thing is just being able to sit next to uh, real uh, sort of, uh, I was going to say legends, but that sounds a bit over the top. I mean, uh, exemplars in fields. So um, sitting next to Supreme Court uh, justices, judges, uh, judges um, sitting next to um, chancellors of the Exchequer, uh, Bank of England governors. Um, being hearing their perspectives around uh, strikes, um, for example, or the economy or um, pandemic response uh, has been, it, it remains such a, a, a big learning experience for me. Um, my, my goal is really to, to contribute in, in two fundamental ways. One is really to lean into the thinking about the long term. I think one of the risks of being uh, in the role of scrutiny, which by the way, my corporate board responsibilities also got similar hallmarks, is that you can very easily be in the here and now and maybe lose a bit of sight in what, what is the purpose of this bill and ultimately it's to, to contribute to a better future. Um, I would argue not just for Britain, but for the world because Britain is such an important ambassador for, um, for the world's uh, progress. Um, but I think, so that long-term reminding that the scrutiny role has a, a bigger piece than just box ticking or just thinking about the bill in isolation. Thinking about the future, I think, is really important. And then related to that, um, my area was going to continue to be around economic growth. So economics and, and human progress is where I, I really plan to lean in. Um, lots of opportunity, I hope, 
Um, but I think that ultimately that's where I can add most value. Fantastic. What a lovely answer. And, and talking about the longer term and, and a better future is a very nice segue into actually what is my final, final question. Before I do that, you are an extraordinary role model in the world of business. And that final question really relates to the fact that we do live in complex, challenging and diff difficult times where perhaps hope and aspiration are much needed. So the question that I ask is, what are the lines of support and encouragement and advice that you would give to the younger generation, that next generation of leaders, as they start out on their own career path? So I think, first of all, um, maybe this goes back to the point about looking back in history. I, I realize in the, the weaknesses of my own education because I've looked back and said, oh gosh, you know, I, I wasn't really uh, sort of encouraged when I was doing my, my doctorate at Oxford or even studying at Harvard to think about the historical context. And I think what what young people, um, or if I were telling my younger self what I think we would find is that there's a lot of learnings um, on how society moved forward, humanity moved forward um, with similar challenges, pandemics, you know, economic challenges, uh, geopolitical fractures, wars, etc. Um, and we were able to do it very often with less technology, with less information. And so I think we need to be fundamentally positive that there's, there always a, is a way forward. And I think part of that is being fundamentally constructive. Um, what do I mean? I think that we, we're, it's, we're, it's too easy today to come up with a laundry list of what's not working. <laughs> um, and I think that that is, is a fundamental problem with uh, um, with how uh, we're, we're trained. We, we go into problem identification and not really thinking about some of the positive things that are happening. So sure, our progress is not going to be linear, but I think it's really important to travel a lot, um, to have conversations with people who aren't, maybe don't look like you or don't um, necessarily subscribe to your you know, innate beliefs because there is there are competing ideas um, and maybe very simply, I think rather than be critical of places that are in, in a different um, economic uh, sort of part of the trajectory or in a different ideological belief, um, I would be much more open-minded to learning about you know, how and why people have different views um, rather than thinking that our job is to just to convert them um, into thinking like us. Well, that's what I would say. What a wonderful well, it's been a real honour and finish. privilege and to speak with Baroness Dambisa today and to hear her inspiring story and stories. Thank you, Dambisa, and thank you all for listening. That's all for me, other than Baroness to say, as always, stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions and inspirational guests. Thank you again, and bye for now. We wish you all the very, very best ahead in all the many agendas that you follow, and I will certainly look forward to reading your next book and publication. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.